0: To be seated. The passage this morning, we'll be continuing to work through the book of Philemon. We're going to read verses 12 through 20. Our time will be spent looking at verses 15 through the first half of verse 19. Philemon 12 through 20. But more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Let's go to the Lord and ask his help to learn from and glean from his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it stands forever, that it revives, that it refreshes, that it enlightens our eyes. God, that it gives us wisdom. Would you give us wisdom as we open your word this morning? May my words be true. May they be faithful. May we hear May we be fed, and may we go from this place eager to live as your witnesses. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Whether you know the books or the movies, the first entry into the Lord of the Rings trilogy is entitled The Fellowship of the Ring. Now I feel I need to now apologize to any of you who are thinking, oh no, Derek is giving us another Lord of the Rings reference. And I apologize, but maybe someday I will broaden my horizons, especially when it comes to literature and refer to other things, but I know these well and they're really easy to just glean from, so just bear with me. But this particular work details some of the backstory of the Ring of Power as well as the beginning of its journey to be destroyed in the very place where it was fashioned. The first half of the book, for those of you familiar, climaxes at what is called the Council of Elrond, where the mission is decided and that a fellowship is formed. Eight individuals promise to go with Frodo, the ring-bearer, to see the ring destroyed for good. Now this particular fellowship is not your ideal group. There's an elf and a dwarf who have nothing but animosity for one another because of their history, because of who they are as an elf and a dwarf. There are two men, one is royalty, the other wishes he was royalty. One is desperately looking for and grasping power while the other simply lets it pass by. There's a wizard whose tact and motives are always shrouded in mystery and secrecy. And then there are four hobbits who are only known for their relative obscurity. They prefer to keep to themselves and their holes, as they say. But these are the nine individuals who pledge Fellowship around the dangerous and critical task of destroying the ring of power. And sadly, spoiler alert for any of you who haven't read, the second half of the book records how that fellowship slowly breaks apart. Despite all the best intentions and heroic acts, the group cannot survive together. While the manifesting re- reasons for why this group dissolves are many, The underlying one is profound. The object that brought this group together, the ring, is the very thing that is tearing them apart. The fellowship is doomed from the very beginning. What Paul reveals in our text this morning is similar, but in the exact opposite way. The fellowship between Paul and Philemon and Onesimus is not doomed. What has brought these men together, namely Philemon and Onesimus, is the very thing that will keep them together, the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, fellowship between Philemon and Onesimus is not going to be easy. Humanly speaking, it is rather impossible. It is akin to asking an elf, a dwarf, two men, a wizard, and eight hobbits to work together to destroy a ring. But unlike that particular fellowship, the fellowship of the gospel can handle the differences, the hurts, the awkwardnesses. It can even handle sin that has been committed. There can be restoration. There can be reconciliation. There can be unity, genuine love, and affection. It will not come through pledges or best practices intentions. It will not be in the result of willpower or human wisdom or strength. Such fellowship can and only will come as the truths, the realities of the gospel are believed and then put into action. The gospel enables and calls us to be reconciled to one another in genuine fellowship. This This truth that the gospel calls us and enables us to be reconciled to one another in fellowship is not simply the heart of the passage that we read this morning. It is actually the heart of this entire letter. Everything Paul has written to this point has been getting to this moment in verse 17. It is Paul's prayer in verse 6 explicitly stated because the full knowledge of every good thing that is for us for the sake of Christ includes reconciliation and fellowship. And Paul understands how large of a request this is. It is why he didn't start this letter at verse 17. He has been building to this point, offering encouragement to Philemon, offering truth along the way, And only now is Philemon ready to hear Paul's formal request regarding Onesimus, his former slave. We can break down Paul's request into three parts. These three parts are are in your bulletin as our three points. We'll first look at the cause of his request in verses 15 through 16, then we'll look at the content of the request, and then finally the cost. First, we begin with the cause of Paul's request. The reason that Paul can confidently ask Philemon to welcome Onesimus is because Paul is confident that God is at work. How is God at work, according to Paul? First, he's at work through providence. Paul confesses God is not idle. He's not sitting around and waiting. No, he is actively working. As our confession declares, God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most holy and wise providence. Paul's not as explicit, he's a bit more subtle in verse, 10 where he, in verse 15, where he says, For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Onesimus was certainly wrong for deserting uh, Philemon's house. He was certainly wrong for stealing or taking whatever it is that he took. But God was still providentially in control. He knew what Onesimus did. He knew where he was headed. It was not an accident or a coincidence or happenstance that Onesimus crossed paths with Paul. Without stating it explicitly, Paul recognizes there are divine purposes at work behind everything that has transpired between Onesimus, Philemon, and Paul. The pain, the loss, the hurt, and the frustration Paul was convinced would lead to something. The temporary parting, literally, Paul says, a while, would yield something far more permanent, literally forever, I think scripture provides us with a perfect illustration of Paul's point, of God's work in and through all things. Even our own sin to bring about his purposes. Joseph is that illustration. If you remember, Joseph was kidnapped by his brothers and then sold into slavery. From there, he was falsely accused of rape and imprisoned for it. And then in prison, he was forgotten by the man who owed Joseph his life. But it was through the miracle of a nightmare of Pharaoh that Joseph was finally released. And then on top of that, he's given absolute authority, second to only Pharaoh, over all of Egypt. And then when the time finally comes for Joseph's family to reunite, he encourages his brother twice regarding God's purposes in all of it. In Genesis 45, 5 and 8, he says, And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who went, it was not you who went, who sent me here, but God. And then later in Genesis 50, after their father dies, he encourages them again when he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. God is not prevented from working by sin. No, he promises and has shown he has the power and ability to use and work through our sin for his glory. Paul was sure Onesimus' arrival back to Philemon would be no different. We can and should be just as confident. We will certainly sin against one another. We will hurt one another. And we should absolutely repent when we do it. But our sin does not prevent God from doing his work. He will use it to purify us, to mature us, to teach us, to rely upon him all the more. But Paul also recognizes that God isn't only at work through his divine providence, but also through the gospel itself. Last week we looked at Onesimus' transformation because of Christ. He was no longer useless, but he's useful. Such a personal transformation means a relational one as well. Listen to what he says in verse 16, that you, Philemon, might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now this is the first time where Paul identifies explicitly what the relationship was between Philemon and Onesimus. It's the relationship between a master and a slave. We do not know the exact details of this arrangement, Slavery in that day was a lot different than the chattel slavery whose effects this country and many countries are still struggling to deal with. Slaves in that day were servants or bond servants. They were included as members of the household. They could own property. They could even purchase their own freedom. The length of service, while it was usually long, was not indefinite. There was a set period of time for how long a servant would be a servant. But regardless of the specifics, Philemon and Onesimus shared a physical bond as master and slave. And whether they acknowledged it or appreciated it, it was strong. But now, because of Christ's work in Onesimus, in transforming him from useless to useful, these men now have a greater shared bond. It is the bond of being brothers in Christ, co-laborers in the gospel. How Paul viewed Onesimus and how Paul viewed Philemon was now how these two men are enabled to view and receive one another. The paths to unity and affection and fellowship have been paved through the gospel. In God's providence, Onesimus' le- Onesimus's leaving led him to Paul, where he was saved by the gospel. And then a new bond was forged, first between Paul and Onesimus, and now through Onesimus and Philemon. Now Paul's wording no longer does raise some questions. Is Paul telling Philemon to release Onesimus outright? Maybe he's suggesting it, or is he implying it? The consensus on this is mixed. Some find the idea that Paul implies it both here and in verse 20. Personally, I think what Paul is mainly aiming at, what he is emphasizing, is not the actual relationship, but the nature of their relationship. Whether Onesimus is free or not does not matter, because the relationship has been changed forever. These two are first and foremost, not master and slave, but brothers in Christ Jesus. How they relate to one another from there flows out of that relationship first. And this then seems to agree with everything else Paul has taught when it comes to masters and slaves in places like 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Timothy 6, where he tells masters and slaves to treat one another with honor as brothers, as co laborers in the gospel. And it aligns also with what 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, where Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What matters most between these two brothers and all Christians is the familial bonds that exist because of Christ Jesus. Practically speaking, though, this is not the easiest to practice. Our natural posture is to elevate or emphasize the physical over the spiritual. We prioritize and treasure the fellowship of those who think like us, those who look like us, or those who have a similar background to us or we consider those with whom we are actually in physical fellowship with more than those who we are not. But our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of what it means to belong to God in Christ, should dramatically affect how we view one another. The bond we share with one another as sons of God in Christ is deeper and stronger than any blood bond. As hard as that is for us to fathom, the fellowship we share as brothers and sisters across the globe is deeper and stronger than any social club, any interest group, or whatever other bond it is that brings people together. So may we allow the truth of the gospel then to inform and transform how we relate to our fellow believers. So that's the the beginning, the cause of Paul's request. And now he moves on to the content in verse 17. Again, this is where the letter has been driving towards. Paul wants Philemon to extend a full welcome to Onesimus. And again, consider the gravity of this request. To this point, Paul has written this letter with great tact and care. He has carefully chosen his words. In a way, he's kind of sought to soften the blow of asking Philemon to receive Onesimus. And yet you have to wonder how these words hit Philemon. Maybe it started with a lump in the throat at the name of Onesimus, and then slowly it's it's working its way down to that pit of the stomach kind of feel. And while straightforward, the request is not necessarily easy. Paul says, if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you would receive me. Paul starts by anchoring his request in the relationship that already exists between Paul and Philemon. Paul and Philemon's relationship he's already written about in verses 4 through 7. They have genuine fellowship as brothers and co laborers in the gospel. Naturally, this meant then if Paul were to randomly show up at Philemon's door, a welcome would be expected. A meal would be prepared and shared together, a place to rest Paul's head. Kindness would be shown, intimacy would be evident, and it would be the same if Philemon would somehow show up at Paul's door. I can remember as a child when my family would at different times host some missionaries on occasion. And while it was fun to learn and engage, I did find it a little bit strange. How could we invite complete strangers into our home and then treat them like longtime friends. How is this normal? But then I had the privilege of being the foreign visitor on multiple occasions, in Mexico, in Africa, and in India. Two of those trips were specifically for missions, but one was just for a a cross-cultural experience. And in each and every one, I can remember fondly the welcome and the reception that I received. I was fed more than I could eat. I rested in their incredible kindness. I laughed. Sometimes I cried. We rejoiced together. I prayed with my host, for my host, as they prayed for me. Why? It seems a little bit odd. It is because each party believed, they recognized this, and we acted upon the partnership, the fellowship that was present not because of any human or physical commonalities, but because all of us share Jesus Christ. It may seem like I'm beating the same drum, but our ability, ability to welcome and receive one another begins with a proper understanding of the fellowship that we have because of Jesus Christ. It is the starting point that we need to believe and then seek to grow in and show to one another. But Paul's request, notice, is not simply for Philemon to view Paul as a partner. He knows it's already the case. Philemon then needs to act upon it by receiving Onesimus. The action is very specific. Philemon must welcome Onesimus as if it was Paul showing up at his door. Just as Paul received Onesimus' service, as coming from Philemon, Philemon is now supposed to receive Onesimus as coming from Paul. And now the real difficulty of the request comes in the next verse, which we will look at. There is sin between these two brothers. It has to be dealt with. It has to be resolved. But before that is addressed, there must be willingness on Philemon's part to receive Onesimus to himself, just as he would receive Paul. It would be highly hypocritical for Philemon to say, Paul, if this were you showing up at my door, come on in. Onesimus, it's you. Please stay out. John Calvin takes it a step further when he says it would be called excessive pride for Philemon to behave that way. Because Onesimus is coming in Paul's stead. Receiving believers, as another commentator states, is an elementary Christian duty. It is one of the basics. Paul would instruct the church in Rome to do the same in Romans 15, 17, because this is how the body glorifies God. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Our confession sheds a little bit more light on what this receiving entails, besides simple hospitality. It says, saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. Which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. It means, this idea of fellowship and receiving and welcoming means worshipping alongside of each other. It means ministering to and serving with one another. It means aiding in one another's sanctification, spurring one another on in love and good deeds. It means welcome. So, is this how we receive one another? Does this describe our fellowship as a local body? It should, and by God's grace, it will. But Paul's expectation would have been, not simply for Philemon to receive Onesimus, but the entire church in his house. So the reach goes further. Our current times has many asking such questions of the church at large, particularly when it comes to our brothers and sisters of differing races. And I think in light of what Paul is teaching, this is a fair question. By human account, Philemon and Onesimus could not be any more different. They differed in background, in social status, likely in their ethnicities. Differences of interests and opinions were probably present too, because they're human. These would have made fellowship and welcome very difficult. And it makes it difficult for us today, but this should not keep us or scare us from asking How are we doing at receiving other brothers and sisters in Christ? It is good and right for us to consider, to humble ourselves before the Lord and to ask him to reveal what we may not be able to see or maybe what we don't want to see. Now know that I'm not standing up here before you saying that we are unwilling or that we are actively doing anything to reject or to turn people away from fellowship with us. And I do not agree that we need to start apologizing for wrongs that we have not committed. I don't think that is biblical or for having convictions about certain issues. I'm simply asking in light of what Paul says here in Philemon for us to honestly reflect as leaders, as a church and as individuals. Are we willing like Paul and as our confession states to extend fellowship unto all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, I'd like to think that we are willing. I would like to believe that we are not actively doing anything to the contrary. So may we be a church, may we demonstrate ourselves as a church that gladly receives all who seek the blessing of fellowship that come as being members of the body of Christ. So we've looked at the cause, we've looked at the content of Paul's request, and now this last point focuses on the cost. And this is the most difficult aspect of Paul's request, for here we find that Paul is not only asking Philemon to welcome, but to be reconciled to Onesimus. And the cost for such reconciliation is high. Paul says, if he, Onesimus, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. It is first a high cost for Philemon. No one knows the exact crime that Onesimus committed when he left. No one knows besides Philemon what the financial damage was that he caused. Roman law gave masters significant power and leeway as to dealing with turned runaway slaves. Some could be put to death. Considering Onesimus not only ran away but stole, he likely fit that category. And even if Philemon would not have been willing to go that far, he's still a human being, albeit a redeemed one. I think about the things that I have thought, that I have said, that I have done towards those who have sinned against me. I can only imagine what's running through his head his heart. He could easily have received Onesimus back but made life miserable. He could have brought frustration. He could have seen that the church in his home ostracized Onesimus, leave him on the outside. Philemon could do what we human beings do by nature and sometimes because we love it, to seek personal vengeance. And this is not simply an out there problem. Sadly, we do it, even in the church, oftentimes in more subtle but no less destructive ways. When someone sins against us, we whisper, we gossip, we grumble, or we go for the passive-aggressive mode of communication. Don't hear me wrong or Paul, we are not called to simply ignore or look past when sin has occurred. That's not biblical either. However, we must be willing to forgive one another. Sadly, many movements and individuals in our culture are operating from no forgiveness, never mentality. The church is not that way. We are vastly different. We cannot hold out for whenever we feel like we're ready. We cannot simply wait until the person pays back whatever it is that they owe in some kind of penance-like acts, which we oftentimes require people to do. For the one who commits the sin, we are called to go and seek our brothers and sisters and to confess and to repent. I believe Onesimus, by being willing to go, does this. And for the one who has been sinned against, we're called to extend mercy, to show forgiveness, no matter what the sin is. Extend the same mercy that you have been shown by God in Christ to the brother and sister who has wronged you. Sure, it's hard. It takes humility, swallowing our pride. It takes prayer. It requires trust in the work of God and the work of Christ on our behalf. But this is how fellowship in the body works. We seek forgiveness. We seek reconciliation with one another when sin has been committed. But not only is this going to be a high cost for Philemon, it's also a high cost for Paul. Paul knows there must be restitution here. Philemon has been wronged by Onesimus. He has lost money, maybe even a bit of his reputation. Whatever the final hit to Philemon was, Paul willingly fits the bill. He says, charge it to my account, and then he takes the pen and says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Where's Paul going to get this money? I don't know. We know he worked as a living for a tent, as a tent maker to help fund his efforts. We also know that he relied upon the support of churches. But wherever it comes from, Paul is willing to do whatever it takes to ensure the forgiveness and the reconciliation between these two brothers. He even writes an IOU for Philemon with his own hand. He's not trying to deceive, there's no trickery here. Paul is going to assume Onesimus' debt in order to cancel the record standing between Philemon and Onesimus. Essentially, Paul says, I'll take Onesimus' payments. Onesimus can take my clean record with you. That sounds familiar. It's because Paul basically embodies the gospel in the dealings between these two men. Or to quote a commentator, he says, at the climax of the letter, we witness nothing less than the radical application of the doctrine of justification to everyday living. If you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. Because in a way, this passage is the gospel theology that grounds Paul's application of this entire request. give you a moment there for those who got a flip. Those who have their phones, this is one of those times where you can use it. But in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21, Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him, regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus brought reconciliation between God and sinners. He took our sin. He assumed our guilty record upon himself. He, the perfect one, became sin and received its punishment. And in return, he gave us his perfect, spotless record to all who would trust in him for salvation. This is and could be the only way that God and sinners could be reconciled. This is the truth of the gospel. It is what Paul appeals to. And then he makes its application in the lives of Philemon and Onesimus. He acts like a Christ-like figure between these two men. And sure, reconciliation between one another will come at a high cost. But can there be any higher cost than the spotless Son of God being nailed to a cross? Our fellowship can overcome the sins we commit against one another. We can be reconciled because we have been reconciled to God in Christ. And this provides us all the power and the ability we need. So are we willing. It hurts when we sin against one another. It really does. I'm not seeking to minimize such pain and sorrow. But the truth of the gospel runs far deeper than our pain and our sorrow. It brings not only healing but the possibility of reconciliation. So do we believe this? As important as it is for us to welcome any and all who are in Christ, what will show Christ to this dark world even greater is our demonstration of forgiveness and reconciliation within the body together. Again, our world is begging, is crying out for reconciliation. But they have no category for it or willingness to forgive. They're grasping at straws. We, on the other hand, not because we're awesome and great, but because our God is, can bear witness to reconciliation as we bear with one another and forgive one another. We can point this outside world that is crying out for forgiveness and reconciliation to where it can truly be found in Christ by the power he gives us in his spirit. The cost will be high. It means letting go of the demand that we have for vengeance, and sometimes vengeance feels good. But the payoff is invaluable. True and genuine fellowship as reconciled believers. The reality is human fellowship comes and goes all the time. Some fellowship lasts for years, others barely make it a month before dissolving, and even those that rally around the best causes eventually lose their luster. I think of the World War II documentary that I finally finished this past week. Many of the allies remain allies, but the bonds have significantly weakened just over time. Fellowship strictly by human bonds and interests cannot and will not be able to withstand the difficulty the sin, the sorrow that comes whenever human beings get together. And my opening illustration centered on the fellowship that have formed around a noble task of destroying an evil ring. They tried their hardest, but they could not succeed. We, the Church of Jesus Christ, do not have that problem. We can say this with boldness and confidence. Yes, we are going to sin against one another. We are not always going to get along. There will be hard and difficult times when our fellowship feels threatened, even when it feels like it's hanging on by the slimmest of threads. But Paul's plea to Philemon here gives us hope. It is assumed by nearly everyone that these two men ended up reconciling as brothers in Christ. Their fellowship endured. It wasn't because they were great. It wasn't because of their ability to stick it out. It was because of the gospel. In Christ, they had the power. In Christ, they were given the command. The gospel enables and calls us to be reconciled to one another in genuine fellowship. Let us pray. Father God, we admit this is is a difficult task because we're human, we want what we want, and when we are wronged, it is difficult for us to forgive. But God, I pray first and foremost in our body that we would be a body that is committed to forgiveness and to reconciliation, that when we are guilty of sin, that we would go to our brothers and sisters and seek forgiveness, that we would repent and confess of our sin, and that we who are the offended party would then show that forgiveness and reconciliation that you have won in Christ. And then may a world that is seeking these things, may they see us, and may they see the reconciliation that you have secured for us. And may that lead many to come and to glory in you. Give us your spirit to humble ourselves before one another, to humble ourselves before you. But we thank you and we praise you first and foremost that you have reconciled us to yourself in Christ Jesus. May that give us power. May that give us hope. May that give us the ability to live as your disciples. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.